Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and it's a pleasure to spend uh, uh, another hour with you today talking to Brandon Del Pozo. This, you know, I'm very lucky in the SIDCast. I get to talk to so many interesting people, one as interesting and more interesting than the other. It's, it's kind of like no, no limit. And, uh, and Brandon is, uh, is uh, definitely qualifies. Uh, Ivy League educated. He's got two master's degrees. Um, he's just about finished his Ph.D., uh, and he's a cop, uh, first in New York City for a couple of decades, and now is the chief of police in Burlington, Vermont. And uh, he's dedicated, he's thoughtful, he's empathetic, and he's very, very smart. Brandon Del Pozo. Uh, lots of great stories and insights that, uh, that will have you stop doing what you're doing to make sure you heard it correctly. He's, uh, he's at his most passionate when talking about the opioid uh, epidemic. And uh, he's also at his most innovative when talking about what to do about it. Uh, you might recognize the name Brandon Del Pozo because um, a while ago he wrote a Facebook post that went viral. And uh, it was in response to um, an obituary and news about a young woman uh, from, uh, that spent some time in Burlington, Vermont. Her name was Maddie, uh, and she was a young mom, and, uh, and she died uh, from uh, an overdose of... Uh, um, of opioids, and uh, um, and it got uh, it got it got some press. And what she uh, and what Brandon wrote was um, was this quote: "Did readers think this was the first time a beautiful young beloved mother from a pastoral state got addicted to oxy and died from the descent it wrought? And what about the rest of the victims who weren't as beautiful and lived in downtrodden cities or the Rust Belt? They too had mothers who cried." them and blame themselves, end quote. It really, uh, it really created a storm because what Brandon was saying was, you know, uh, the number of, uh, of, of tragedies uh, is so large, it's such a gigantic problem from opioid addiction and from overdoses. And uh, um, every now and then the media picks up a story here and there because the, uh, the victim happened to be, in this case, uh, a young, attractive mom. Uh, and, but uh, the people that uh, uh, the people that suffer from from this epidemic are of all shapes and sizes and colors and um, and uh, religions and and locations. It's a uh, it's a gigantic uh, a gigantic epidemic. And um, Brandon uh, um, Chief Del Pozo actually has some very important and interesting. Uh, ideas about how you can address, how we can address this problem. And they are science-based, they are evidence-based, but yet they're only beginning to be used in some places, and there's still a lot of resistance around it. And so it's uh, th this is a podcast that uh, episode you really want to listen to because there's so much to learn, not just uh, about Brandon and his, his life and his journey and his lessons along the way, but about his thinking as a real innovative thinker and, and someone totally devoted to action in terms of solving these problems, um, someone who really understands what happens to, uh, to people when they get addicted to op op opioids and understands, very, very importantly, some of the things we can do to greatly uh, reduce the disaster that this is today. Welcome to another uh, episode of the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I'm here in Burlington, Vermont, with Chief Brandon Del Pozo of the Burlington Police Department. Hello, Chief. Hey, Sid. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you uh, have you on, and it's exciting to talk to you about uh, well a lot of a lot of different things. Um, um, you know, police chief in Burlington, and that's not how it all started. You were you were uh, you were a cop in New York for a long time, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, listen, this, the the real beginnings before that, right? So I was born in Brooklyn in the mid '70s, and uh, um, you know, was a pretty conscientious student, more or less. Uh, my family's goal was to send me to college. I hadn't had a family member who'd gone to college. And uh, as good fortune and some hard work would have it, I ended up at Dartmouth. Long story long, two days after graduating Dartmouth with a degree in philosophy in 1996, I took the New York City Police Department exam. And 10 months later, I was hired as a New York City cop. So all told, I did about 19 years in the NYPD before being the chief of Burlington. Now, why did you want to be a cop? Interesting. So, uh, you know, I really, I mean, I loved my 
philosophy studies and I loved writing and I still do. Uh, New York City was a different place then. I remember growing up in the 70s, 80s and 90s and it was a really violent place and that's mm-hmm. an objective account as well as a subjective one of feeling scared. You know, there were at one year well over 2000 homicides. I was mugged on the way home from high school. I had a friend who was killed as a victim of a stray bullet in a in a shootout while playing pool. Um, I'd seen people get stabbed to within an inch of their life on the train. It was just going to Stuyvesant High School, which was a math and science high school, free, public, but for you know students that took a test to get in, was a danger. So that that fifty minute commute from Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, into Lower Manhattan alarmed parents, and for not not for no reason, it was dangerous. So you know, in the in the mid nineties, I'd heard that the NYPD was making really great strides reducing crime. And the crime was going down across the country, but really quickly in New York because of a good police department. And I thought I would do a few years as a New York City cop to kind of give back to my city and make it a safer place because it was fairly miserable at times. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it turns out that it wasn't just a few years. It turns out it was, uh, yeah, it was was a a profession, a lifetime. I lived, uh, my wife and I lived in New York in the... um Mid '80s, uh, we were both at Columbia, and uh, we're we're here in. Um, by the way, we're here in uh, Chief Del Pozo's office. Yes, and this is um, active police force, so stuff stuff's going on in the background. But uh, <laughs> yeah. that's just you know, that's that's authentic. So yeah, we live there. We live in the city. And I remember it was, uh, you know, it was a scary. It was a scary place at that time. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, oh gosh, uh, Speedboat is a, I believe, a novel by Renata Adler. Um, she was a great fiction writer, still is. And I remember reading this book a few years ago, and New York City was just painted as this place that, like, the rich people left, and that, you know, you read Tom Wolfe, and the whole, you know, Tom Wolfe died, I guess, you know, last year. The whole motor of the plot of Bonfire of the Vanities is a wealthy couple taking a wrong turn in the Bronx and feeling so endangered that they hit the gas and run someone over and that person turns out to be um, an honor student and it becomes politicized. Um, getting off at the wrong exit in the Bronx is no big deal now. It's just yeah. you, you put your GPS on and get back on the road and you're safe. But in the 70s and 80s, if you get off at the wrong exit in the Bronx and you're in a Mercedes convertible, there was a real worry that that wasn't going to end well. Yeah, I bet everyone who lived there has stories of, of, of that, you know. Um, I, even, I, even I remember, you're making me remind me, of, luckily nothing, nothing happened, but it was late at, uh, it was late then, I don't know what it was, midnight or something, and I'm not sure how I ended up in some of those streets on the way to the Upper West Side where we're living, but... Um, get a little get a little nervous when you see all kinds of uh, gangs in the corner and uh, they're looking at you and there's not a lot of cars that are that are there. Yeah, I think too. It was a tough time for kids in Brooklyn and the Bronx, not just you know like Jewish kids like myself, but we're talking about black and Hispanic kids. I mean, mm-hmm. they if you felt as a as a well educated person or as a middle class person under the gun, imagine how it, it must have felt to be a poor kid in that neighborhood. Um, with very few opportunities. And I think one of the things that meant a lot to me as a police officer was to police neighborhoods that really needed it because of the violence. My first assignment was um, East Flatbush, Brooklyn, which was, my rule was it had to be close enough to my house to be able to get there by bike when I wanted to, but it had to be um, busy enough and with enough crime that I felt like I was really helping a community that needed it. So that was East Flatbush. And then after that, Crown Heights. Wow. Were you afraid? You know, being young, and Hmm. I was young, I was in good shape, I was also an infantry officer in the National Guard, so I think looking back, I'm more afraid of like, whoa, what what was I doing at that time? (laughs) At the time, I was was like your typical 20-something, you know, young man, like, I felt like I had good training, I felt like I had good fellow cops, Um, I felt like the the danger and the crime was a challenge, and... uh, there were times I was scared. I was scared on 9-11. I was downtown when the towers fell, and, and I felt like we barely got out of that in one piece. Um, there were times where people I work with were killed, um, and it reminds you of how things could turn out. But I think I benefited a lot from being 
you know, young, which is why young men become soldiers as well, yeah, right? Yeah. Exactly. So you mentioned 9-11. What were you doing that day? I was just a sector cop in East Flatbush, but once the towers got attacked, they sent thousands of cops downtown, and uh, we were sent down pretty quickly, my partner Kevin and I. We were two cops in a radio car, and um, they conglomerated us into a team of eight with a sergeant, we went down, and um, when we got out of the battery tunnel, going into the battery tunnel from Brooklyn was the last time I saw those towers alive in one piece um, burning. I'll never remember, excuse me, I'll never forget the sight of this this guy off his motorcycle at the height of land on the Gowanus Expressway, like the BQE, where it's really high. It goes above, I guess, like Smith Street just off his bike in the shoulder, just marveling at the destruction mm. on that beautiful day. Then we went down into the tunnel, and when we came out, we all wanted to make a right, to like go right into the towers, get out in the towers and to the right. But the sergeant said, no, we have to go to the left and get our assignment. Our assignment was to evacuate the stock exchange, and I think that made all the difference um, as to our fate. If you had been sent we, right there. If we just got in out and instinctively made a right. Because uh-huh. that's where the danger was. Yeah. Um, I think we could. I know we would have gotten into the towers. It's what cops do. It's they were. You know, that's we would have found our way in there by virtue of wanting to help people. The sergeant had the sense to to order us. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you this: it's getting into the weeds. But the sergeant was driving the van, and that's not common. Sergeants have rank. You have a driver, but I he made the left. I think a cop just would have made the right, and he would have lived with it. But he made the left. We got our assignment, and uh, and I was in front of the stock exchange when the when the towers went down. Um, I didn't know if it was another jet coming or debris, or smoke, whatever. Um, but once the smoke settled in between collapses, I got up on a folding chair and I evacuated my part of the stock exchange. Some twenty something year old kid telling bankers they had to go home. <laughs> Wow. Never, never going to forget that. No, no. Um, did you end up working around the uh, Ground Zero site after that? I did. I was uh, a commander of Bravo Company of the 1st Battalion, 69th Mechanized Infantry in the New York Guard. And um, I came home after doing, whatever, 20 hours at Ground Zero as a cop. I came home to Brooklyn completely covered in the debris, the dust. And I got out of that. I remember my wife took some pictures. She was my girlfriend at the time, Sarah. And I took a shower, got up the next morning early, put a military uniform on, and went right back to Ground Zero. And we did site security and, and some rescue work, but a lot of just stabilizing the site and making it a safe site uh, for the for the workers. So that was for a few weeks. I know folks are getting sick because of that. Um, I've been really lucky. Yeah, your health is is fine. For the from that, yeah, nine nine eleven really. I mean, I did take. Yeah. A, bad fall on a bicycle but that has nothing to do with 9-11 yeah there there are a lot of um there have been a lot of bad things that happened john stewart has been um, really big a real champion of getting folks to take the illness seriously yeah yeah so um the crime rate in new york has plummeted happily um and a lot of people study this sociologists study that but you've been you were part of it and and you know you you've thought about it in a lot of different ways why why did what do we what do we account for the good news I think there's a lot of revisionists who say, oh, crime is falling everywhere and the police have nothing to do with it. And I just, I wholly reject that. I think that it's a mixed explanation. I mean, most explanations are, right? But I think that um, I personally would see these neighborhoods where shootings were happening in, in housing project courtyards or in parks. And we would go and we would we would take that park back and hand it back to the people and say, there's going to be officers here. And if you're going to stay out and play, you're not going to get shot. And if you're going to close your business home late, I used to stay out on a foot post. Uh, on Rutland Road in the East 90s on a Friday night, Saturday night. Well, let's say Friday night in the, in the in the 90s. And I would watch people getting off the train, walk into their homes. And, and I, I knew, I said, these people will get off and see me. And they were going to get home with their Friday night paycheck in their pocket safely because the police were out. And if we weren't there, somebody was going to try to rob at least one of them. That was the fact. That was how it happened. Friday nights were robbery night because people had their cash paychecks mm. in their pockets. And uh, I know we were securing that land. And then what we did, crime is sort of like a gas, right? So you could you could create a vacuum and suck gas out of a space. But maintaining a vacuum is really, really hard. Like mm. all the police do is create that vacuum. Something's got to backfill it. And I think in places like Chicago and Baltimore, what they're struggling with is when the police do create that vacuum, 
Do they just have to struggle to maintain a vacuum? And it, you can do some pretty desperate things to maintain that vacuum at some point. Or does something fill it, right? And in New York City, like the civic life filled it. Gentrification, frankly, filled it. I mean, mm-hmm. that's when you look at, 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 at Crown Heights and Park Slope and Sunset Park and, um, you know, the Bronx, uh, Alexander Avenue, I can pick a million places. Uh, we created a vacuum that was eagerly filled by gentrifiers. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the dirty secrets of the great crime decline in New York City is is uh, is that it it did price out a lot. We were saving the lives and, and helping the, the livelihood of a lot of New Yorkers who were then subsequently priced out of the neighborhoods we created. Wow. Wow. Um, and you look back at those at those days and you uh, you think, um, you know, you really did something important. You and obviously many, many other people. Um, and do you think about, uh, I mean, how do you think back at those days? Because, you know, we're here in Burlington, Vermont. This is like another ideal mm-hmm. place right by Lake Champlain. It's, I can't imagine a much different place. Well, we have crime. I mean, we, you know, we're hunting right now for a man who shot another guy in the head and left town. We just had a homicide a few months ago, a daylight shot to the head homicide. We ended up arresting six people. So, I mean, I'm not saying this crime. It, listen, it's not the Bronx uh, of the 90s, right? But it, it's it's not mm. also quite Mayberry. Hmm. Um, if you look back, yeah, I mean, I, I think we, we, we did make that difference. And I know we, we had a hand in, in, in securing the city. And, you know, and I said this, and I'll say it, and uh, you know, people can say, "Why didn't you say it at the time?" Well, because I was I was a mid-level executive at the time, but but with no voice to, to the public. But we we went too far, you know. Stop question and frisk um, to have eight hundred thousand or six hundred and change thousand of those incidents where we're stopping people. We would send teams out that stopped a hundred people a night. That's not based on good evidence of criminal suspicion. That's based on, on uncreative leaders and managers just seeing a constellation of things that worked and just doing it harder and harder and harder uh, beyond its utility and beyond the merits of its value proposition. Yeah, and now we're talking about racial profiling. Not racial profiling per se, right? But there's definitely, definitely um, these practices had a hugely disproportionate effect on black and Hispanic uh, mm-hmm. men in particular. Um and so the argument was, well, the crime is highest in, and the violent crime is highest in this part of Brooklyn, in this part of the Bronx. So we're going to go there, and we're going to use stop, question, and frisk, and we're going to really be aggressive. And I think that there was a time in the mid '90s where you could go out as a eyes wide open, conscientious, aggressive cop and like catch a lot of genuine criminals, right? Mm-hmm. And then I think there was a time in 2013, advance, you know, 16 years, where the same attitude and the same tactics was yielding. Uh, Dolphins instead of sharks, or some bad analogy, uh, and we took a really unacceptable toll on on communities of color that way. And and I think the one of the things the NYPD has to reckon with is is uh, how slow it was to adapt to the changes in the city it helped create. Yeah, yeah, I and mean, that's a theme I'm going to return to a little bit later. We're yeah. talking about the opioid mm-hmm. epidemic and how slow so many police departments sure. and others are. Um, uh, I was listening to a uh, podcast. Uh, David, David Axelrod, I don't know if you listen to him, that's called The Axe Files. He's the guy that worked for Obama and uh, just has a, he's at University of Chicago. And he was interviewing Sonia Sotomayor, the justice. Right. And she has a fantastic story. She grew up in the Bronx and uh, she had a very, very challenging uh, childhood. It's amazing to see what, what happened. And one of the things she mentioned um, is the relationship between the police and the community. And she says, uh, when she talks to community leaders and has talked to community leaders in the past, she'd ask them, well, did you, uh, did you ever uh, go over to the police station to introduce yourself and say hello? Um, and did you ever do the kind of basic things we do for, to, with other people in the community so you feel like they're human and not just us versus them? And she said, of course, she, she also would ask the police, did, have you gone over, have you ever been invited over, have you gone over and broke bread with uh, people mm-hmm. in the community? Yeah. And she, she thought that that was, and, she, and what she said is, hardly ever was there an answer, a positive answer on, on either side. What's your experience with that and that kind of community building? Yeah, I think that, so we, 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 we there's a lot of vexing problems in policing. One of them is that um, 
is this model where cities are policed by officers who can't afford to live in them or who just don't want to live in them because they deal with a lot of grief and, and, and trauma and they want to live, you know, in a ranch house uh, in the suburbs with their family, right? Mm. Um, so there's this one thing where officers feel a little bit alienated or at least unattached to the community they police. I think that happens in a lot of places. I knew that I... When I moved out of New York City, it was not to say the beginning of the end of the NYPD for me, but I knew that my relationship with my police department and my profession mm. had changed. Because I was always a Brooklyn kid growing up in Brooklyn, living in Brooklyn, traveling to Manhattan for high school. And then as a cop, I, I lived in Brooklyn. And uh, that meant a lot to me that like mm. I was never more than 10 minutes of pedaling or eight minutes of driving away from the areas I was policing. I was part of that borough. And I love policing the Bronx uh, as a commander in Lower Manhattan. My first date ever, uh, my first official date, I don't know what you'd call it, was with a young woman named Amy. And uh, we went to like West 4th and 5th Avenue to a place called BBQ. And little did I know, I only say that to say, and then all these decades later, two decades later maybe or more, um, yeah, basically I I was the commander of that precinct, right? (laughs) So I felt like it was important for me to have an affinity to the places I was policing. And I think a lot of the way we structure our work in America, as far as commuting goes, as far as home ownership goes, prevents police from having a stake in the community that they police. So one of the reasons why maybe the cops don't go and break bread that often with the community is because they're commuters to a job that they don't always have a stake in. I would love to lead a police force where most of the officers lived in the city that they policed. That's not the case in Seattle. It's not the case in New York. It's not the case in Burlington. Um, that's a long answer to your short point, and it doesn't even address all of it. But I think that um, uh, you either have to – Baltimore just started doing this. And I was talking to Dan Heimowitz, who's the head of innovation in Baltimore, another Stuyvesant graduate, another philosophy major. I think we're like a year apart or so. We're like or more than that, but brothers from a different mother. He said it's important to hire cops for the right – Reasons And one of the reasons it's overlooked is their desire to socialize. Hmm. If you hire cops who get a value out of socializing with hmm. people as a facet of their personality, yeah. you'll be hiring a good cadre of cops. And I, I agree. I was leaving a tailor and trying to bring a suit back to a car here on Church Street in Burlington. And it took me an hour to get from the tailor to the car, even though it was a block. Because I was talking to so many people. They recognized me and we were catching up. And Mm -hmm. I said, I can't believe a beat cop could get paid to do this all day, every day. Then it occurred to me, well, not everybody wants to do that all day, every day. That's right. But I wish I could hire the people who did. That's that's really an interesting criteria to hire hire a cop. Almost like emotional intelligence, uh, the enjoyment of interacting with uh, with people. And and as you say, it's not usually in – it's not even on the list probably. Well, because, right, you have to have – Decent physical fitness. You have to have impeccable judgment. You have to have good character. You have to have calm under pressure. Other things we do screen for. But with if you were to make this Bayesian chart, right, of the whole universe of people qualified to be cops, somewhere within there you could draw a circle yeah. with people who are good at socializing. And I think I'd want to go after them. Yeah. And um, back to um, kind of the, the – your decision to become a cop in, in right at the beginning. So you went to you went to Dartmouth and and then you went you were you were part of the New York Police Department and uh, the National Guard, as you say. Yeah. Uh, did you have any classmates that had any similar path as you? So there's a handful of people who are um, you know uh, people. You can never be too educated to be a cop, and I believe that. But speaking in stereotypes, you would say the cops would say you, you guys are. Overeducated. Why you got? Why'd you take this job? Um, my deputy chief here now in Burlington, Deputy Chief John Murad. He's my one of my two number twos. Um, did over a dozen years in the NYPD, and he went to Harvard uh, undergrad, Kennedy School as well. Um, Matt Delaney is a Dartmouth ninety nine. He was a in finance, and I met him. Who's classmates with my brother, who's another Dartmouth ninety nine, but. He said, hey, I'm interested in becoming a cop. And, and we met over a beer in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I talked him into it. So he uh, was on the forest. There was a guy from Princeton who did a few years. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, you know, I mean, if anything, it's a certain elitism or snobbishness that stops people from thinking. You know, mm-hmm. no one thinks, listen, I'll tell you, 
being a cop and being a public school teacher are two equally challenging jobs. One mm-hmm. is is more dangerous than the other, but they're very very challenging and demanding, and mm-hmm. they both really make a difference. Mm-hmm. Nobody looks down on a on a Dartmouth grad who becomes a public school teacher. They think, oh, that's great. You're doing Teach for America, and maybe you'll go to grad school after that. But that's really good work. You are doing just as much social good and having just as much community impact by being a cop. But the Ivy League looks down its nose at that. And that's that's clearly the fault of, of, of the institutions. That's their bias. You, and you've felt that or experienced that over the years? Well, I think, I'm, you know, it's a gimmick. Oh, wow. It's so let's get that guy in the room. He's uh, got a Dartmouth diploma and he's a cop and he went to graduate school at Harvard. That's going to be so different and interesting. And, you know, good people aren't patronizing, but sometimes they can be. They'll corner you at a cocktail party and go, so why did you become a, a cop? She went to Dartmouth. And... That's what I'm asking you. No one becomes a... Don't want to ask that to a, to a public school teacher. Mm. Why not? I'll turn the tables. Why wouldn't you ask that question to a public school teacher? They're both out there in the community yeah. doing the same social service-oriented work. I think the answer is it's much less common. Yeah, that's true. Because I mean, of all sorts of institutional biases, <laughs> to be honest got, with you. You just talked about you know, somebody else from Dartmouth, someone from Harvard, someone from Princeton. So... <laughs> it's probably much more well known. Well, that's out of thirty-six thousand uh, cops, I got that. right? I so got that. <laughs> still a very small n. But did so did did, um, did did other so did other cops come to you and say, you know, what what are you doing here? Yeah, because they they, you know, no one in my family was a cop, but I can think of two people on my block in Brooklyn who became cops. One of them is Guy Stabile. He just retired as a lieutenant, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the whole thought was like I was out there being this really nerdy, conscientious yeah. math and science high school student. You know, I took eight years of math in high school. So the whole goal of that is to get a white collar job where you don't have to pound the pavement and walk hmm. the beat, you know, and and policing is good, respectable middle class work that gives you good benefits in retirement. You get to have some adventure and some interesting experiences, but it's not what you get when you really hit the books and get that education. And I think that's... So interestingly, I think that's one of the reasons it's hard in many jurisdictions to recruit black cops because they'll go and work really hard to get a bachelor's degree Mm -hmm. and fight a lot of um, disincentives, fight a lot of stereotypes, fight a lot of bias, get their degree, and then the prospect of, quote-unquote, like wasting it on a blue-collar law enforcement profession... I think turns some people off. There's this pressure. Well, you've worked so hard to do this. Mm. Why do something then with your degree that you could just do if you had a high school diploma and associates in many jurisdictions? Um, so that said, I, I did it because I think the value proposition was 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 clear to me. You know, this was a, a city that was really struggling with crime, that was dealing with segregation because of crime and, of course, you know, racism, yeah. frankly. But... Um, that was a traumatic place to live in and go to high school. And I could, I could use like my brains and my wits and my, my physicality to make a difference. I believed in that and I still believe in it. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking to chief Brandon Del Pozo from the Burlington police department. We'll be right back in a sec. We're back at the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and we're talking today to, uh, to chief Brandon Del Pozo from the Burlington police department. So, uh, Chief uh, Del Pozo, uh, Madeline Ellen Linsenmeyer, uh, who was a uh, 30-year-old who died of, um, uh, of opioids, and uh, something that she'd been fighting for years and years. And uh, uh, her sister wrote an, an obituary about her that uh, went viral and was picked up all over the place. And, and you, um, you responded to that and, and wrote about, about that. And that, uh, and that maybe became even more uh, viral, if that's possible. Uh, and started to bring, I think, started to open up a really uh, important discussion. And among the things you wrote were um, asking, why did it take a grieving relative with a good literary sense to get people to pay attention for a moment and shed a tear when nearly a quarter of a million people have already died in the same way as Maddie, uh, as this epidemic group? What 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 were you saying? What were you what were you getting at? Well, I mean, first, that's not to detract from the beauty and the and the the real moving nature of that obituary. I mean, I wish every obituary could be as beautifully written as that one from a, you know, a talented and and loving family member. Um, But 
the breaking point for me was when the when the obituary was picked up by People magazine because People magazine could be in the middle of any horrible event in a society and basically ignore it. Like that's that's People magazine. It's beautiful people going yeah. to beautiful places with beautiful people doing beautiful things. And and they're publishing uh, an article about the obituary of, frankly, like in the photos, a good-looking white woman with a beautiful baby who died of an opioid overdose. And I said, this is what it takes for People magazine to start paying attention to mm-hmm. the biggest mortality crisis in modern American history. I mean, it it it, it it's it. The entire Vietnam War was approximately sixty thousand U.S. combatants killed. Mm-hmm. You soldiers, sailors, airmen. Um, we lose that every year with opioid overdoses. It's like fighting and losing the Vietnam War every single year. You have to go back to World War II with a civil war to lose more Americans through summary death in, you know, accidental or unwanted death in in a year. And and I felt indignation that then that that so little attention was, you know, as as a chief of police with a good conscientious mayor in a good city, you're, you're dealing with the opioid crisis every day. And yet so little attention was being paid to it out in the public. And then a beautiful obituary gets into People magazine to raise awareness. I said, no, 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 no. You're not, we're, not gonna, we're not giving ourselves a pass here. Mm. This, this has to be something that we pay attention to every day. Yeah. Yeah. Did you actually see it in People magazine? I was following it online, and when the you news, must have really. Yeah, I don't. I don't subscribe. I'm being honest. I don't subscribe to People I, magazine. But when disclaimer, disclaimer, uh, recognized. <laughs> but I would just imagine that hearing you speak about it now and knowing what you wrote about this, you must have hit the roof. Really, you must have said this is the last straw. I mean, well, I, just... I wrote that that Facebook post at eleven thirty at night in bed. I mean, I wrote uh-huh. not, not to say neither here nor there about like my writing ability it was more about how exercised I was. And so I knew like around 1115 at night, I, I see the people magazine link and I go, something's got to change here. If this is what it takes. And I, I remember being in bed with my thumbs on a smartphone, writing that Facebook post and saying, gosh, this is really how I feel. And it's strongly worded. And let me press, uh, you know, publish or send or whatever they call it. And, uh, and it immediately, I mean, within minutes it went viral and I, I was surprised, but also glad that, we were getting some awareness. Yeah, yeah. Why? Why is the opioid epidemic so bad? What's What's happened? It's the nature of the drug. Um, I think that there's a combination of the just how addictive it is, and how powerful it is, and how lethal it is, and especially when you graduate from the analgesics to heroin to fentanyl. Most American opioid deaths now are fentanyl related, and fentanyl is extremely powerful. So what you have is a society where people, to a certain extent, will always be inclined to take drugs, right? Whether it's crack cocaine or regular cocaine or alcohol, nicotine, caffeine. We all have, in our communities, people with the inclination to become addicted to something based on a lot of different reasons. But when the market makes fentanyl available... It completely overpowers our ability to for, to yeah. control it using normal means, using the normal hospital system, the normal EMT system, the normal addiction treatment system. It, it, you know, I'm, I'm saying this simply, but I really think there is a simplicity to it. Every community has an addictive tendency. Every community has the capacity for many of its members to become addicted to substances. Mm-hmm. This is an extraordinarily effective and addictive yet lethal. It's an extraordinarily addictive yet also lethal substance hmm. right there are things that are more lethal but they're nowhere near as addictive as as this type of opioid and then there are things that are um, you know much more addictive but not lethal we have this very unique combination yeah. and I'll tell you the pharmaceutical industry did a real bang up job of making sure that everybody got a chance to get addicted hmm. I mean if you want to lay Unfairness at the feet of America. We will go after. I go after any heroin dealer I can get my hands on because they know what they're doing. They know that they're putting people's lives in danger. They know they're doing. No heroin dealer is so insulated from the news. They have no idea that they're behind the death collectively of, of fifty to seventy thousand people. So we go after them. Take responsibility for the, the decisions you make. We've yet to lay that responsibility at the feet of the pharmaceutical industry, and systematically, they're just as culpable. 
Now they've absolutely they've created these medications meant to be used for people in a hospital or recovering from operations or some such thing. Right. But then doctors prescribe have prescribed them. Right. I mean, overprescribed at the pressuring and insistence of the of the pharmaceutical industry. You want a free dinner. You want a golf trip. You want they turn they lobby to turn pain into the fifth vital sign. So doctors, I remember I had some surgeries uh, in the past years. We're right out of out of uh, an- anesthesia. How's your pain? Okay, here's two Percocet. Take these. Tell me how's your pain. What scale is it? Do you need more Percocet? I, yeah. I left. I still in my medicine cabinet have Percocet from from um, at least ten years ago. Hmm. I got so much of it. I broke my patellar tendon on camel's hump, hiking with my son on my back in two thousand nine. I think it was. Listen, they were caring people at Fletcher Allen Hospital, but they sent me home with uh, just taking one look at me. They said, go have surgery in New York. Here's 50 Vicodin. 50? It could have been 40. Um, And so, you know, and then after the opioid analgesic fatality rate started going up, nobody in the pharmaceutical industry and very few people in the medical profession cared to rein it in. It was very, 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 very profitable. Yeah. Is this going on in other countries as well? Um, as far as you know, yeah. So to some extent, the uh, um, you know, listen, uh, let's let's say what it is. Purdue Pharma was was hell bent in their business plan. If you read their, we want to make sure that every country gets what America gets. Like our goal is to make sure that we give out as much oxy per person uh, in every country in the world as America, like cigarettes. We just need to get it out there. And, you know, timing stopped a lot of that from happening. But you could tell by my tone of voice, like, I think it's, it, it was just an extremely destructive and reckless and negligent enterprise. And I guess one of my frustrations as a chief of police you hear coming through, yeah. which is that, like, I have the satisfaction of holding street criminals responsible for mm-hmm. what they do mm-hmm. when they hurt someone, when they kill someone, when they drive drunk. Um, I get really frustrated that we had, like, a very, a very conscious and systematic attempt to create addiction for profit in the pharmaceutical industry and and time will tell whether we hold them responsible in the same way yeah yeah so i get i get very exercised about this uh, well the the numbers are unbelievable when you when you reference more than the vietnam equal of vietnam war every every year when you put in that type of context people understand a little bit differently, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and that means 60,000 maddies um, a year it did, and it didn't have to be this way yeah um, so how do we deal with that? I know you have uh, written about, you have advocated, uh, you have a lot of ideas. I want to walk through some of the details sure. around, uh, ar- around those. In fact, um, um, why don't we take a look? Because in that, in that uh, I'm not sure if it was in the actual Facebook post or, or afterwards, you have a list of things that uh, should be done. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, it starts off with support and propagate needle exchanges, as is being done in Burlington. Right. That's... I'm guessing pretty common now. Is that right? There's still places in West Virginia and I believe in like Illinois, maybe, but really I believe Iowa, for example, or Ohio for sure, where there's either resistance to needle exchanges or um, it's illegal or not just resistance, the community in its entirety is like, we don't want it. Um, Very, very short range thinking. Um, Not only do they provide a means to stop the spread of things that you'll have to pay for if a poor person gets them, like endocarditis or hepatitis or AIDS, right? Hmm. But they also provide a trustworthy way to, for people who are addicted to get into treatment. Like people who are addicted don't feel comfortable going to random doctors. They don't feel comfortable going to the police. They don't feel comfortable just showing up in an ER. But if they trust the people at the needle exchange, when they're ready for help, they can go and get help. And our needle exchange, not only – I'm very proud of this. Not We worked on this together as a community. Not only do – they refer people to treatment, but we've organ- our needle exchange will start the medication-assisted treatment right there in the exchange that day if you come in. That's path-breaking. We're proud of it. And if you look at our numbers, um, last year in the rest of Vermont, but not our city and county, mm-hmm. fatal overdoses were up 20%. Mm-hmm. They were down 50% here in our wow. city. And that's because of interventions like that. So yeah. needle exchanges, yes. Everybody should have them. Um, but the, so the reason that it doesn't happen in various places, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess there's a, a mindset that might say, well, you know, it's their fault. Why should we help them? 
there's that. So it's it's two concepts that are nested. One is like it's their fault for doing this. Why should we help them? And then the other part of it is why should we make it easier for them yeah. to do it too to continue the activity and like. If you understand how addiction works with opioids, it literally rewires the executive functions of your brain to emphasize maintaining the opioid molecule in your body as something that is at least as important as anything else you do. Mm. It's as important as taking care of your kids. It's as important as going to work. It's as important as keeping a roof over your head. It's more important than the sanctity of your body, whether you want to prostitute yourself or take risks to get the drugs, commit crimes. And so... To say to someone whose executive functions have been rewired to the point where the only thing they truly value mm-hmm. is basic life functions and heroin or fentanyl, oh, we're not going to make life easy on them. Yeah. What are you doing? You're just mm-hmm. – what are you hoping to accomplish? Oh, I, I, I was going to stay addicted, but since you didn't give me the Narcan or you didn't give me the needles or you didn't give me the buprenorphine, I'm, I'm, I'm going to – I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. I'll tell you what. Like the science proves that that is just not true in any way. Like if that's your, your view mm-hmm. – you just don't believe in like scientific proof. The idea that you can just be abstinent and kick it without like harm reduction and without medical based interventions like buprenorphine or methadone, like 90 something percent failure rate, not 95 percent. Some say high is 97 percent failure rate. It's, it's just not. The police are here to win. We're here to actually lower crime, actually save lives actually keep people alive. And so you got to do what wins, not what, what it's one thing. I, I, I'll say it this way, right? It's, it's one thing to live or die by your principles. It's a whole other thing to force someone else to live or die by your principles. Hmm. You know, it makes me think of a few other things as well. Um, um, when it comes to, um, pu- public health, certainly, uh, the economy, uh, whether, uh, whether you should help people that need, uh, that need, uh, that need help. Uh, and more, more generally, blaming people for not being strong enough. And the reverse is, uh, um, is the I built it, uh, which is every successful, I'm not going to say every successful entrepreneur says this, most that I know are fully understand it truly does take a village uh, and then some. But there is a mindset among some people um, and some very powerful people uh, that... Um, um, if someone's successful, it's because of their actions, because of what they did, and they were strong enough and smart enough to do it. And if somebody is not, it's their fault. And that translates, I think, quite closely. And and that belief is a religious belief almost. I don't mean religion. Yeah, it's very dogmatic, right? I mean, listen, I think philosophically it's fairly bankrupt. I mean, to say that your hard work and your gumption and your your view on life don't are arbitrary is, is not true. I, I But... Where you got that from is matters. I mean, I, you know, if you look at my block in Bensonhurst and you're just looking at like educational attainment and you're just looking at financial security, like I'm uh, out of my cohort in the 70s, I'm one of the most successful people on my block. But I happened to be born into a family that was like Jewish and Cuban. My father was this immigrant where... Um, he really valued the American dream and wanted his kids to capitalize on it and imbued that in me. My mother, as a, a, a Jewish person, had never – neither of them went to college, got a degree. But my mother um, came from an upbringing where they really, really valued education. And when all the kids – I get to play for like an hour after school, but then I have to come in and do my homework. And the other kids continue to play. So if you're going to come out and say, oh, I built it and it's all me, like I could have been two houses down – in Bensonhurst, and I would have been a good person to a loving family, but I, I wouldn't have been as quote unquote successful by the measures that like people in you know business school, for example, like to measure success by. Yeah, well, it's it's it's, it's very interesting because one of the things I tell my MBA students, uh, which not everybody likes it, but it's true. And it's true about me as well. Is how how lucky they are mm-hmm. um, because you don't pick your parents, as you say, and that means you don't get to choose the genetic profile you are born with, and that opens up gigantic opportunities if you happen to be have certain type of intelligence that translates into the things that get you into universities and find find sure. it easy, etc. And, and and the opportunities are, are endless. But you didn't choose that, uh, so there's there is uh, there is something. Kind of a, a mindset that I think is is analogous, um, and, and I'll tell you, I, I don't know. Um, I, I think being a cop helped me um, um, get this straight, which is, I walk into a grocery store and I say to myself, I can walk into the store and any, I can buy as much as I want of anything in the store 
for me and my family, and I never have to think twice about it. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, like, how many Americans, you know, I've seen poverty and hunger and homelessness in my job, and I've seen really desperate people, and, you know, I literally walk into a grocery store and say, oh, I want to buy a lobster tail, and I'll go right in the back and buy it, or filet mignon, I'll pick the one that looks just right. I feel like so fortunate that in the world, not only in America, but in American history and world history and the rest of the world right now, that like I can walk into that grocery store and buy anything I want. I I feel lucky that we have a functioning grocery store. (laughs) Yeah, there are places even today where that's not the case. Go to Venezuela and yeah, I was just thinking of Venezuela with the inflation rate and just yeah, yeah. Um, let me go back to your list of, of things that you can do to, to, I don't know about solve, but certainly right. ameliorate the problem. So I'm probably not going to say this right, but there's a drug. That's the police department at work. Go ahead. Sorry. Police department at work. Uh, give out, how do you say this? Uh, uh, Buprenorphine. Buprenorphine. Okay. Uh, give that out at needle exchanges, basically any user who requests it, and at emergency rooms to anyone who presents with an addiction. So what does that drug do and why is it so important for people to get it right away? Buprenorphine is a less powerful version of methadone. So same idea. It, it, if you think of your, your opioid, your dopamine receptors in your brain as like chairs and you're playing a game of musical chairs, this is a, uh, you know, you can have, um, well, okay, I'll just skip that analogy. I'm sorry. Uh, we can get back to it in a second. But buprenorphine is more powerful as far as the way it binds to your opioid receptors than heroin. And it gives you a little bit of, of pleasure. It gives you a little bit of good feeling, but nowhere near as much as heroin. But because your your receptors are preoccupied with it um, and, they're in, and they're not overwhelmed by, by pleasure, you can go on and lead a very normal life and not have the cravings for heroin or fentanyl or, you know, the analgesics. Um, and so what it does is it occupies your addicted brain just enough with just enough of a cue of mm-hmm. the reward to stave off the craving, to stave off the addiction. And it's just a low level enough cue that you're mentally free to pursue your life. Right. And so when you look clinically at what makes a difference, um, opioids um, are the most pleasure producing, Right. Um, but also the most addicting and also the most disruptive. And then like Narcan, the thing to reverse an overdose Mm. is the most powerful, but it makes you feel miserable if you're accustomed to the pleasure. It just, Mm. just overloads your brain with like, um, um, a chemical that kicks everything else off and, and which is why it reverses an overdose. But there in the middle is buprenorphine and to some extent methadone to make a long story long, which uh, do all the work of, of occupying the space in your brain that your brain expects for yeah. the heroin to be, mm-hmm. but ju- with just enough force to keep the cravings away and just enough force that it doesn't overwhelm you when you go and live your life. And, and like, we don't have that for crack. We don't have that for cocaine. We don't have that for alcohol. We don't have that for crystal meth, but we have it for opioids. We have the, the, that type of medicine that like does the work of preoccupying your brain, but allows you to live a normal life without feeling the Sounds cravings. Sounds like a magical thing. I said to myself when I read it, is yeah. this a magical thing? <laughs> and I went to addiction researchers. I went to psychiatrists. I went to doctors and they said, no, chief, it's not a magical thing. It's just we as doctors have been saying this all along and no one's been listening in the public policy realm. Mm. And I went back to my mayor and I reconfirmed this and triple confirmed this, that we have this quote unquote thing that can really save lives. Like imagine, and, and we tripled down on it. Mm. And now that gets you to survival. That gets you to maintenance. It gets you to closer to normal. It doesn't help you kick the habit forever. You may have to be on, this, on these drugs for years. But it keeps you alive. It reduces mortality. And, and I think any good self-respecting public health uh, regime for opioid should center around buprenorphine and methadone as the treatments that keep people alive, mm-hmm. reduce mor- mortality, and get people towards sustainable recovery, period. And is it being picked up in a lot of other places or still early days? I think – you know, it's funny. I felt like like – I had reporters, like really good reporters, friends of mine on NPR, like mm. the, the people that we all hear mm. on our evening drive as our, as our, I won't name names, but the person you're thinking of, it was them um, on National Public Radio saying, Brandon, I know we've been friends for years, but I can't take you seriously. You're just saying that this medicine will reduce mortality. Like doctors, everyone would have known this and done it already. Huh. 
And I said, no, it really is the travesty that it's not being done. And once we started doing it, France just let the gates open on buprenorphine in the last decade, like a decade ago, and their fatal opioid overdoses went down 79%. In prison in Rhode Island, they just gave buprenorphine to anyone who wanted it, who screened for it, and their post-incarcerated fatal overdoses went down 63%. So we're finally taking note of this. In New Jersey, there's a really path-breaking pilot where once you get an overdose, the EMTs can give you buprenorphine in the back of the ambulance. We give it out at our needle exchange. We give it out at our uh, emergency department. In Vermont, we have a great law where you get it in jail now if you're addicted. And it's making a difference. It's saving lives. I'm sorry for sounding so dogmatic in my own way, but the science was clear. The stigma wasn't. It was still persisting. And uh, we really missed an opportunity to save thousands upon thousands of lives, and now we're finally getting around to it. It's finally happening. You know, uh, the question is really, I think you've also written about this maybe in that same Facebook uh, post where you're tired of talking to, I don't know exactly who it was. Sheriffs. I just brought sheriffs. Whoever, you know, whoever it was, uh, to try to convince them to do some of the, some of the types of things like this. That, so there's resistance, maybe even more resistance among cops. Why is that? Um, I just think that like cops don't, you know, number one, we're not public health experts unless we take a diversion into that territory, which I think would be a really fruitful diversion. But so you don't have that facility. Um, there also is this idea, and let's just say it, that like buprenorphine, for example, is still a, uh, um, it's a partial agonist. It's a partial opioid. Mm-hmm. So there's this idea like purity, like this 12-step idea that sobriety huh. means having nothing in your system. Right, right. All right, Fine. That's just not going to work 95% of the time. Mm-hmm. Clinically, it's been shown. Being on a drug that is similar to an opioid that achieves a bit of its effect but mm-hmm. that still allows you to live and function is good enough for me. Like I always tell cops, if you could give somebody a pill that would stop them from doing robberies mm. but it would still leave them with a little bit of criminal intention, just enough for them to feel like they were living the gangster life, but stop them from doing the actual robberies. Uh, You'd be like, give everybody that pill. (laughs) The fact that we don't accept that like capacity in, Mm. in, um, opioid deaths is, is, is troubling. It's, it's not a full solution. It is a good rational partial solution that works. And I think that there's a stigma like cops want people to walk the straight and narrow they want people to be fully sober. They want people to be law-abiding. They want this certain purity. I threw purity out the window when I saw that 70,000 people, plus or minus, 60-something yeah. thousand people were dying. I said, let's just go for good, partial, impure solutions that will actually save lives. Right. And I think we have to bring some other police departments and sheriff's uh, departments along. Yeah. I mean, it's a classic story about trying to find something that helps solve the problem. It happens not to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so um, this is uh, there. There are more suggestions, and people can go look at that. Then we'll post that fa- the mm-hmm. link to the Facebook uh, um, um, piece that you, that you uh, that, that you post. But the but the bottom line is, there's a bunch of things that uh, can be done. Sounds like reasonably easy if you wanted to, and it boils down to if you wanted to. Well, the implementation is easy in the way that you don't have to figure out how to send. You're not looking to beat back the AIDS crisis by researching and creating the AIDS cocktail, right? That took years of research. It took millions and millions of dollars. It's not like we got to send someone to the moon. How do we make a spaceship? We have this thing that we know works. We know it will save lives. We know it's effective treatment. Um, It's building out the public administration, like the public infrastructure to, to action it. The hard part is not what to do. I could draw the plan out for you on a napkin right now, and I guarantee it would it would save thousands and thousands of lives in the short term, like in months. Um, it's building the the public health and public safety and public administration related like infrastructure and programs yeah. that do it. That's right. the hard part. Yeah. What I always say about change is there's three things you got to do, and it's true. I've never seen a change where they're not all in play. The first is you got to be willing to do it. And we've talked about how not everybody's willing to do it yet. Some are. Second is you got to have a good solution. And I think you said, well, that's, the, that's on the napkin. We know what that good solution is, that better solution. And three is you got to execute on it. And that's kind of the latter part that you're talking about. Um, uh, it seems to me the willingness one is the, is the biggest block. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two that 
it's not that hard to figure out. It's not it's not the most complicated thing in the world. No, you just need to. So many other hospitals have to change the, their standards of care in the emergency department. Um, you know, politicians have to get say, I don't care. We're opening up a needle exchange. We're going to allow doctors to prescribe buprenorphine in it, and and the sky's not going to fall, and lives are going to be saved. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's it. Yeah, li- li- lives it. lives are going to be saved. Let's uh, let's take one quick last break and uh, and come back with uh, with uh, Chief Deposo to uh, pose a couple of last questions. Welcome back to the Sidcast with Sid Finkelstein. I'm here with Brandon, with Chief Brandon Deposo. Um, we're gonna have one last quick uh, segment, uh, and I uh, uh, and I promised uh, only five more questions, each quick and short. It's least. a speed round. It's a speed round. Here we go. Question number one. I'm looking at your desk, Chief, and uh, mm-hmm. there's a sign in Arabic. What's up with that? So I lived in the Middle East for two years in the Kingdom of Jordan. I lived in Amman. I was working with the NYPD Intelligence Division. We were trying to figure out how to prevent terrorism from coming back to our shores. And from 2005 to 2007, I was part of the Jordanian Public Security Directorate. So that... Arabic sign is my my desk sign for my Jordanian uh, police desk. So you must speak Arabic. I speak enough Arabic. I can get in and out of trouble in Arabic or get in a cab in an Arab country and yeah. basically get to where I'm trying to go or go to a restaurant. or yeah. You know. And you're posting there. What was the goal? Were you- so we were trying to, number one, offer training and police expertise to and technical assistance and support to the Jordanian police. But then also figure out the climate for radicalism and terrorism there. It, it wasn't like a spy thing. It was the intelligence division. But we were like, for example, when there were terrorist attacks in Jordan or in India, India was another part of my beat, um, I'd respond to them and figure out if it was at a hotel or a train or a tourist destination. What made those attacks feasible? Why were they able to be carried out? What kind of planning did it take? And as a result of uh, all of that, um, we were able to make New York City a more difficult target to attack, learning the lessons of attacks that happened elsewhere. Wow, wow. interesting. Yeah. Um, question two. You are, uh, I'm not sure if you've done this already, if it's finished, but you were doing a movie, you were directing a movie. I did, yeah. That's a little that. different again, so tell us a little about that. There was a, uh, um, a homicide that, I just gave away part of the movie. It's, it's not a police movie per se, but it was a movie about um, um, a family going through a difficult domestic situation where one of the members was at risk and about the moments before a confrontation. It's 12 minutes long. It's called Sunday 1287. I don't want to give away the rationale behind the title, but if you Google Sunday 1287 or just go on Vimeo and look for that. I, I took the password off. You can view it. Uh, and I say it with enough confidence that, you know, when you're 22 or 23, you get to make some pretty bad films because you're a kid. When you make a film in your 40s, uh, it better be decent. <laughs> and so I think it was decent. Showed at some festivals. and won an award or two. Uh, Is that I, something you want to do? Ah, uh, come on. If I could wanna... wrap up American policing and solve the problems here and go into filmmaking, I would do it in a heartbeat. <laughs> Uh, we'll we'll look we'll look for it. Sure, thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, advice. Uh, imagine you can kind of go back in time and sit next to the twenty-one-year-old Brandon, uh, and uh, he's busy doing whatever he's doing, and you kind of go next mm. to him and say, "What what what are you gonna tell him? What would you tell him uh, that you kind of wish he knew um, a couple of decades ago?" Wow, I don't know. That's that's an amazing question because you think that. You know, chiefs do interviews for a living. Mm-hmm. I think that I would have had my answer for that. Um, I think I would have said to the, the the younger Brandon, like, listen, you're going to have challenges and setbacks. And I remember I got assigned to this unit that wasn't a precinct patrol unit. It was like a unit that just rode around in precincts that had a lot of crime to supplement their work by just doing um, various types of enforcement. And... Uh, I thought it was at the end of the world. I thought real cops ride with their partners and squad cars and respond to 911 calls. And I remember coming home, like, in tears to my girlfriend saying that my wife, like, my career's over. And then when I was assigned to internal affairs, that's important work. Mm-hmm. But it's often a dead end in New York. Or you once you get on that track, you stay on it for your entire career. It's very rare for internal affairs people to break back out and command a police precinct. It almost never happens. Mm-hmm. 
And I got assigned to Internal Affairs because they drafted me into it. And I thought, again, like my career was uh, mm. was over. And I ended up, no, I ended up getting a, two precinct commands. And it was rare, but I did it. I guess I'd want to say to the younger person, like knowing how it turns out, just don't think the worst or the most uh, pessimistically of pitfalls and letdowns and situations. Like if you have the right determination and the right people supporting you and the right uh, attitude and good values, like it'll, it'll Hmm. tragedy can always strike genuine tragedy, but it'll probably work out. Just stick, just stick to your values. And, and I'd also say, be careful to pick institutions that recognize your values. Like one of the things I think that really benefited me with the NYPD is they sent me to graduate school for free to get my degree from the Kennedy school, paid for it all. Um, they sent me overseas for two years. They gave me two precinct commands, which are great leadership experiences. And I was very lucky to be in an institution that recognized my, uh, my intentions and my values and, and cultivated them. And I would say to the young Brandon, like, as long as that's the case and you are who you are, you'll be okay. Yeah. I mean, as long as you're learning, have an opportunity to learn, and your environment gives you that chance to learn. That's right. Another way of saying it. Right, yeah. right. Don't go for the short-term paycheck or for the short-term ego boost. Go for the yeah. the institutions and projects that really align with your long-term goals and values. Great. Question four. You mentioned your uh, your wife, Sarah, is her name? Yeah, Sarah Carnival. How did you meet? We met at the gym. Um, so it's now, it's still a synagogue, but now in Grand Army Plaza in the circle, if there's Brooklyn They'll undoubtedly be Brooklynites listening to this podcast, and by that I mean people who move there to be hip. But there's <laughs> there's Grand Army Plaza now has this big glass condo uh, on the northeast part of the circle, next to which this pretty thin yeshiva. So that northeast part of the circle used to be a parking lot. The the synagogue on the upper floors had a like a private gym. They just leased the space to this gym called Eastern Athletic Club. Way too expensive. My friend was a my Dartmouth grad friend Mark Cicerelli was an investment banker at um, uh, gosh I'll remember in a second but just put some big bank in your head um, J.P. Morgan mm-hmm. and he was a member at the gym's other branch and they didn't even have an ID card it was just a number 42166 he said just go and use my number at the other branch and Is I said, that well, the that's... actual number? yeah <laughs> 42... just go and say your mark it's expensive but you're my buddy and they don't cross check and just say your mark There's no... I didn't even take my photo and I did the research. It turns out that's not a crime. That's a civil infraction. So I wasn't like okay, a... Okay, we've got that. Everyone's hearing crime. that. Perfect. <laughs> so I went there to that gym way above my budget. Beautiful gym on the upper floors of this synagogue. But, and then my, I, but mostly older people there because it was expensive. And then once I saw this woman like working out and, and I said, she's my age. What the hell? How'd she get into this gym? It turns out she was doing some graphic design work for a company that um, produced periodicals that the gym advertised in. So she got a free membership. Uh, so yeah. we're two freeloaders. <laughs> and I knew that she was going to want to, I was watching her shoulder workout. So she's going to need this bench. So I'm going to sit on this bench until she has Strategic. to ask me. Strategic. I like I said, this. she's going to sit, I'm going to sit on this bench until she has to ask me to, to, to share it. And sure enough, she said, uh, I know you've been sitting there for a while. Kind of Waiting doing, for me. <laughs> kind of doing nothing. Do you mind if I work in? I was like, oh, yeah, but do you come here often? And gosh, the rest was history. She's a math major from Duke University. She's a public school math teacher. Now like a brilliant, caring mom. Like really the brains and, and motor behind our family and our operation and like yeah. my, insp- you know, just the rock. That's a great That's story. Yeah, we met at the gym in 97. 97. Yeah. That's great. Um, Okay, last question. You are uh, close to wrapping up your PhD, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So right now I'm editing the first draft, you know, but it's a good for it's not like the like some amorphous horrible first draft. I think it's pretty serviceable. So I have a dissertation committee. Uh, so far I think it's Omar DeBoer, professor and Charles Mills, uh, and John Kleinig's my advisor. It's in political philosophy, and I should have that wrapped up by uh, the end of this year. So it's now July, so by the end of the year. So are you going to join, kind of cross over to my side of the street, the the world of academia? That's a great question. Um, I love the life of the mind. I've really done a lot of work. Um, you know, I have a tattoo. Let's just end it this way, since we're free associating. I have a tattoo on my arm in Chinese, Wen Wu Tsing. It means 
Path of the Philosopher or the Scholar Warrior. I got it out of a philosophy textbook in 97 and took it to San Francisco with me to get a tattoo. And it was always a balance for me. It was to remind myself that in life you need to be an action person hmm. and a thoughtful person. You have to balance them both. And being out of balance in either one is not, hmm. is not right. It's not a healthy life. So I've been trying to balance the scholarly self and the, and the, the army and police chief action-oriented self. And, but maybe I'm just getting older. Maybe <laughs> I've done enough action. Um, I love um, the way good ideas can really influence thought. I would love to pursue. So my dissertation is about an account of policing in terms of modern democratic liberalism. Just the like Rawlsian, uh, Elizabeth Anderson in Michigan has some great scholarship on on what it means to be democratic and liberal. But where policing fits into that. But I also think that like the language of public health and the methods of public health are extremely important for police to acknowledge and embrace. And I think. If we really want to innovate policing and, 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 and thread it into the rest of uh, our efforts to increase the quality of people's lives and have them live longer, healthier lives, which mm-hmm. is why I became a cop, mm-hmm. to have people live longer, healthier mm-hmm. lives, that, that we, we need to nest ourselves within that public health language and not as a way of acceding victory to some public health attacker, but to say, no, like the work we do, it has collateral consequences. It has negatives. And... Public health doesn't say that makes you bad. It says you need to manage iatrogenic effects of the work you do. You need to manage collateral consequences. Mm-hmm. You need to nest your work in with other types of interventions mm-hmm. to have community-level effects on the length of people's lives and the quality of people's lives. And no intervention is perfect. They all have costs. They all have side effects. They all have some negative effects. And how does policing fit into that in a way where we can, with our partners in, in the public life, doctors, public health officials, social workers, mental health experts, all sorts of people, firemen, firefighters. Um, how do we innovate and reform and continue to do great work but also acknowledge and manage our collateral effects and our iatrogenic effects? And I think, so to answer your question, I mean, I, I love the, 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 I would be really interested in, in, in pursuing that idea in terms of public health and policing. Mm-hmm. I think that's unexplored territory and, and, and I think it holds uh, great promise and just to, Go on, since the tape is running, I think a lot of public health officials say, no, we need a public health approach to public safety. They see it as some sort of like alternative to policing mm-hmm. or better than policing. I just disagree with them. I think there'll always be a need to protect and rescue people. There'll always be a need to uh, broker cooperation in public spaces in ways that police um, you know, can, can influence. And to speak about that in terms of a public health paradigm is, is really intriguing. So ironically, I'm on the deck to finish a philosophy PhD but if I were to, and I do want to solve some projects in that, but were I to go into academia, it might be in public health. Okay. Yeah. Public health. Fascinating. Maybe. Yeah. Or business, if you can sell me on it. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, Brandon, it's, uh, it's great, to, uh, great to have you on the SIDCAST, Chief Brandon Del Pozo. Uh, really enjoy the conversation. I know you've got a lot of police work going yeah, on. Yeah, the phones yeah, police work happening enough. at this moment. Uh, but uh, taking the time is uh, is great and highly appreciated. Oh, thank you so much, Sid. This was a pleasure. Great time. Thank you.